This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Burnout is a concept uh, that has been popularized. It's most um, um, sort of most known uh, theorist is Maslach. And she has described burnout or defined burnout as a prolonged response to chronic emotional and interpersonal stressors on the job. And it is defined by the three dimensions of exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy. Every major medical center now has efforts to respond to clinician burnout, including, I'm sure, Vanderbilt University. It certainly does certainly have a, a couple of different initiatives on that front at Duke. How, so how should we make sense of this phenomenon? I want to think about that with you, you guys. And how should we respond to it? The typical response within the world of healthcare is uh, to mobilize self-care, as the term is called, and to seek to help people find more work-life balance. I mean, just today, um, I was invited to yet another uh, wellness round, and, and I did not go because I don't find these particularly helpful personally. But afterward, I got an email with instructions for five-minute chair yoga, right? These kinds of things are going on everywhere, help uh, self-care and work-life balance. And there's two problems, I think, at least with this response. The first is it doesn't really fit the story I told you of this young woman uh, and countless stories about others like her. It's not the case that at some point she stopped caring for herself and therefore became burned out. Uh, it's not the case that at some point uh, she stopped doing other things in life and therefore her work-life balance got out of kilter. Um, rather, what she's experienced is that her work has become, uh, you might say, morally, as she experiences it, morally insignificant or kind of deflated. When she goes to work daily, she no longer experiences that work as sufficiently meaningful or worthwhile. As I said before, the journey to be a physician was costly. And the reality is medicine, the practice of medicine has always been a lot of work. It's always been costly. Uh, there's always been much ado uh, to being a practitioner of medicine. But now as she experiences it, it seems like much ado about not much. Um, she's working hard, but she's not finding reward in the work, at least as she experiences it. So one way to describe burnout is that it's a loss of morale. If you think of the word morale, uh, same root as moral, um, uh, a, a synonym would be a demoralization. So that's the first problem, is that this self-care and work-life balance doesn't actually address, it's kind of mismatched with the problem of loss of morale. The second problem is that this, by responding with emphasizing self-care and work-life balance, what the healthcare, in, healthcare leaders and healthcare institutions are doing is actually encouraging people to see their work somehow as at odds with their life, such that 
uh, work becomes treated like as if it's a kind of a disease that you have to try to mitigate or keep at bay with your self-care and with balancing out with other things. Um, or the idea that if you have more work, your life goes down, uh, that when one goes up, that the other goes down. That seems a real problem because if your work is actually at odds at your life, then the reasonable thing to do, if you want to live, if you want to have life, is to stop working. That hardly seems like a, a constructive response to um, demoralization among uh, clinicians. There are three interrelated dynamics, I think, at least, these three prominent dynamics that contribute to this malaise of physicians or loss of morale. And the first one of those three is the rise of industry and bureaucracy in the world of medicine. <clears throat> Peter Berger, the late and famed um, sociologist, and his colleagues wrote a, a book in the early 1970s called The Homeless Mind. And it was a study of modern life, a study of modernity. And in the book, they noted that modernization has, it has many features, there's lots of that happens, but it has two constitutive features or intrinsic features. And those are, the first is technological production or industry, and the second is bureaucracy. Their argument is that these things have an outsized influence on uh, the shape of our lives in, in late modernity, technological production and bureaucracy. And that these things form in all of us a consciousness, it's kind of like their word for form our imaginations um, uh, in certain ways, a consciousness that's carried over into other domains, including in, into the domain of caring for patients. So you see evidence of this rise of industry and bureaucracy, I think is seen in the emergence and prominence of movements such as continuous quality assessment, which is students that even in medical training, students are being trained how to do continuous quality improvement, continuous quality assessment, continuous quality, continuous quality control. These are, these are practices developed within the world of industry being brought into medicine and taught as kind of normative. If you're not doing continuous quality management, you're not really, being a good doctor. And then we have this just experience of medicine as management. We are managing our patients. We are managing blood pressure. We are managing diabetes. And we as physicians experience ourselves as being managed by the system. So physicians experience themselves increasingly as, and this physician I told you about in particular, experienced herself increasingly as a, a kind of interchangeable cog in a machine that is making what uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Abraham Nussbaum calls famous factory meatloaf. And that was a reference to a, a, a prominent essay by Atul Gawande, the surgeon writer, in which he said, you know, medicine should be more like the cheese factory. We should be able to turn out affordable care in the way the cheese factory turns out affordable meals in a consistent reproducible um, uh, pattern. And Nussbaum asked the question, do we really want famous factory meatloaf, which is one of the, the uh, things on the menu at, um, at uh, the cheese factory. Is that really what we want uh, as clinicians our work to be about? So that's the rise of industry and bureaucracy. That uh, contributes, I think, to a loss of morale. And I'll explain a little more in why in a moment. A second uh, 
uh, dynamic in our world is there is what I'll call the disenchantment of medicine and of the world. Um, Max Weber is the, I think, pretty widely considered the father of modern sociology. Um, uh, and in a famous essay titled Science as Vocation uh, in 1918, Weber said, the fate of our times, this is a century ago, the fate of our times is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization, and above all, by the disenchantment of the world. What did he mean? It, the idea was that we are, we are kind of from the cradle to the grave, trained in modern life to act as if, even if we don't think cognitively this would, we could go all the way with this, we act as if everything in our world can be explained by breaking it down into its parts and understanding its mechanics. Everything can be understood scientifically. Um, nothing is kind of more than the sum of its parts. And that, uh, that disenchantment, um, which goes hand in glove with the kind of technological production and bureaucracy, brings about what Berger and colleagues, to go back to them, uh, described as componentiality, which just is the sense that we all carry, even if we're not, we're not thinking about it in exactly these terms, that everything can be known by breaking it down into its parts, and that even the clinician, even the doctor, is a cog in the machine, um, can a replaceable cog in the machine. We can take out the component, we can take Dr. Wills and replace Dr. Wills with another doctor, uh, with similar disciplinary training, and uh, you know, we'll have the same thing. It also results in the, a pattern of separating the means and the ends, which means that we all become conditioned um, to thinking that that our job is just to do our job, which is our part in the assembly line, so to speak, and not to think about the the long what what this job is trying to accomplish. So for a physician, what you're not, you're not, you're trained in so many words, not to think about what is human flourishing? What is human health? How does our pursuit of this, of a person's health in certain ways contribute to their flourishing? What is fitting for them? Instead, you're trained to do your job, provide healthcare services competently, efficiently, um, and without getting the, in the way of the, of the system. And finally, what develops is what they call, I think this is really interesting and it rings true to me in my experience, what they called moralized anonymity, which means if, you're, if, if, we're, if we understand ourselves as cogs in the machine and we become habituated to separating the means and the ends, meaning we, we just think about doing our job and thinking I'm not, it's not my responsibility to think about the purpose of all this is, then we also internalize the sense, not only that we are anonymous, that we are interchangeable, that the uniqueness of us doesn't matter, but that it, sh this is the moralized part, that it shouldn't matter. Um, that we should not let our personal values impose upon our professional practices, the way the language often uh, goes, that we should check our personal values at the door. We come to actually police ourselves about that. Um, I've observed this widely. And that leads to what Berger and colleagues called a double consciousness, which um, is not just their term, but they, a kind of double consciousness um, in which we all see ourselves as a kind of two things. One is this irreplaceable individual with a 
maybe a rich personal private life. And then we, we see ourselves also as a kind of anonymous bureaucratic functionary, a cog in the medical machine. Um, and that's our public, that's our public identity. That's our public role as we become trained to see it. Um, that's all goes under this disenchantment of the world. And the third dynamic is the decline of moral agency. The Catholic uh, uh, philosopher and critic of modernity, Charles Taylor says, if there's one endemic feature of modern life that we all are familiar with, it's learned helplessness. We all live within and are affected by institutions that are so complex that it seems like there's no way we could change them. And healthcare, I think, is just a, a paradigm of that. Vanderbilt University Health System, who on this call thinks they can really change it? Right? Uh, it just, it's too vast, too complicated. Medical education, who can change it? We all live with a sense that I can't change anything. And that reifies that sense of, you know, what's the point? I'm just a cog in the machine. I'm just going to do my job. Um, again, with that, that double consciousness, we, we, uh, we think we shouldn't let our personal values interfere with our professional obligations. And so we start to compartmentalize ourselves um, and leave a big part of ourselves at home, so to speak. And we become, not surprisingly, providers of healthcare services. It's a really striking language. You almost never hear, well, you almost always hear clinicians now referred to as providers. Um, providers of healthcare services fits this kind of industrial bureaucratic model. And this demoralization leads, unfortunately, and this is part of the problem, this physician I told you about, it leads to detachment. So when this work that this physician thought she was called to do, um, that she was called to as a way of life, really, uh, when it becomes merely a job to tolerate, then she, without even thinking about it, she detaches from it morally. She stops giving herself fully to it. Robert Bella and colleagues in their famous study of, uh, of uh, kind of social life uh, in the 80s, I believe it was the 80s, or maybe it was the 70s, but the book was Habits of the Heart, um, talked about the difference between a job and a calling. And, and they said, insofar as you experience your work as a job, you do it for rewards that are external to the work itself. And the classic reward that you would, that you would be seeking in just a job is just income. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, a lot of people have to do a job in order to gain income to provide for their families and so on. And if that's all you're, if that's why you do the work you do, then it's a job for you. But insofar as you experience your work as a calling, they said, you do it for the benefit, the uh, rewards that are internal to the work. You do it because of the work itself. So um, you, that might be the, the, the goodness of healing patients, for example, forging relationships with them, being in solidarity with them. That itself gives you the reward. And if that's true, then you're going to do the job um, even at substantially less pay, potentially. Now, in our story, the work of medicine ceased to make sense as aligning with this physician's calling. It became just a job for her. And then the problem was even worse because if it were just a job, it wouldn't have been as demoralizing. If she could um, come to grips with just making medicine a job, it wouldn't have been as demoralizing. Lots of people do jobs. But she sensed, and I think a lot of physicians sense this, that it was, that there's a sense in which it was wrong to do medicine as a job. 
Um, it is wrong to practice medicine as if patients are files or cases or widgets, as if this work is a matter of technological production. Now, insofar as this account I've just given uh, is true, the challenge for this physician is not self-care and it's not work-life balance. Um, rather, the challenge is for her to recover a vision for why her work is worthwhile, why it is good in itself, um, and to find a way of doing that work that is truer to what she believes she is called to do, was called to do um, in being a physician, truer than what she currently experiences. Now that may mean for her, it's often going to mean that she will resist and reject efforts to treat medicine as merely the technically competent provision of healthcare services to those who are authorized to request them, which you're gonna get lots of messages in that direction in the world of healthcare. She's gonna to have to learn to resist those and to reject them, to hold them at, at, at arm's length and not internalize them. And that's also gonna mean probably that she'll need to be willing to be perceived as sand in the gears because she's not gonna go along with all of these both tacit and explicit understanding of, of what it means to practice medicine. Now in my work, I, I also pay attention to another layer of the story. Um, this woman, this young woman is a person of faith. Uh, she, in her case, is a Christian. And she went into medicine with a sense that medicine is work that can be fitted into a Christian's vocation to love God and to love one's neighbor. In her case then, her malaise takes on an explicitly spiritual and theological character. She asks, she finds herself asking not just, what does any of this have to do with medicine, the stuff that I'm doing? What does any of it have to do with medicine? But she, she finds herself asking, what does any of this have to do with what I thought God was calling me to be and to do as a physician? One form of resistance to the dynamics that underlie her malaise uh, is, is to reject this idea of separating out the personal and the professional, the religious and the ethical. If medicine is not good work for Christians, then Christians at least have reason to leave the practice of medicine, it seems to me. And the same seems true for those from other traditions. If being a good physician means being a bad Christian, then it's a no-brainer. A Christian needs to get out of medicine. If being a good physician means setting aside what it means to be a good Jew, then, then Jewish people have reasons to get out of medicine. Um, I think it's interesting uh, that Avedis Donabedian, uh, Donabedian is, I think, widely considered sort of the father of continuous quality improvement in the movement in medicine. Um, and he had an epiphany at the end of his life. Uh, I'm told that toward the end of his life, he increasingly was distressed by what he saw as the rise of industrial models of quality improvement within medicine. And in an interview just before he died, he said the following. He said, the secret of quality is love. You have to love your patient. You have to love your profession. You have to love your God. And that I propose to you is a, it's so memorable because it's so 
at odds with the normal language of quality improvement. I mean, in my 20 plus years practicing medicine, I've never heard someone talk about quality and talk about love like that. Um, but that to love uh, your patients is to, is to set aside the vision of your work as being a cog in the medical machine, just providing healthcare services. Um, it's to set aside the pattern of detachment where you have your personal life and then your professional life and you keep them separate. And it's instead to take your whole self and commit yourself to your patient and their good uh, in a way that I think is the very thing physicians long for and the very thing that makes us historically esteem practitioners of medicine um, is that we count on them to be committed in that way. At Duke University in the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, um, I have the joy of working with colleagues to uh, invite those who have vocations to healthcare to basically dig deeply into Christian tradition and consider what it means to uh, engage suffering, illness, and disability in the light of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and one of the things that's most gratifying uh, for us is to see the people we train come to the end of that training and, and be able to say, say to us uh, that, that again, they experience medicine as very good. I remember the first time this was said at a retreat at the end of the, I think it was the first year we had our fellowship. And a, a few of the fellows reflected that they had come to the fellowship really perplexed about whether continuing in a career in medicine could be something they could do with integrity. And they went away seeing, you know, medicine is very good. The work of medicine is very good if you understand it rightly and engage it um, for what it is. They're able to say, I'm not helpless. They're able to say, learn to speak more truthfully about what medicine is for, to see the emptiness of so much that drives medicine and pathways by which they can practice medicine well as the good practice that it can and should be. And that I, I propose to you is um, a vision of what, um, what I think so many physicians today are longing, a vision they're longing to recover of their work, not being just a job, uh, but being the sacred vocation that they intuited it was when they set out to become a physician. I'll stop there and look forward to talking with you guys. So the first kind of question that I had was um, when you mentioned kind of like being in the cog wheel and people just kind of feeling like they're a piece of the machine. I feel like a lot of people when they choose to go to medical school feel a calling towards it um, from faith or just a, a want to serve others. And then I think with that comes a sort of creativity. We come in like we've done all these things in undergrad. We have all these grand ideas of how we want to help people. And then we get to first year and there's such a load of information that you're just kind of beaten down. Like if you go on the creativity path, you're gonna go down it for seven hours and come out not knowing what you read for seven hours. Um, and so I feel like sometimes people kind of put their heads down and go through this tunnel of like med school and residency. And then I guess my question for you is like, how do you get out of that tunnel um, once you kind of make it through the hard part? Hmm. You know, if you join 
um, the Jesuits or the Dominicans, um, you're going to be put into a tunnel of sorts um, in that uh, those who join those orders, um, like those who join medicine, are going to be put through some very strict and scripted uh, practices and ways of organizing their life and things they have to study and things they have to practice and places they have to go and they have to practice obedience, they have to do what they're told. There's not a lot of creativity in that. And yet I think there's that that's not a problem so long as the thing that they're being trained for is itself good. So long as the, the training is um, that hard work that is preparing you to do something that is genuinely worthwhile. The problem becomes when that training, um, you get the sense that that training is basically kind of making you into a mercenary, if you will, um, it, it's, it's, or a cog in the machine. It's, it's training you to be a good functionary in a system that you're losing faith in, a system that you think is not actually not act, not so clearly committed to the good that was the, the, that drew you that led you to join the order or to join the profession, um, and uh, so I think the key is you mentioned how do you get out of that tunnel. I mean, um, there's some practical things when you're going through the first couple of years of 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 medical training. Um, I think it's, you can do things as simple as practice Sabbath to break, break the rhythm and remind yourself that there's more going on here in time and history and in dimensions uh, beyond just this, this uh, tunnel, as you, as you put it, of training. Um, and you can read books, uh, despite the fact that medicine is a pretty anti-intellectual uh, medical training is a pretty anti-intellectual experience. You're not going to be encouraged to read many books. You can read some books and you can continue to meet with people who are outside of medicine and so on. But I think the deeper thing is to, is to become aware of the way when you're in the tunnel, what are you being trained to do in that tunnel and to kind of lock arms with others who are committed to being good physicians, um, not just to being providers of services and sort of stay alert together and keep alive that commitment as you go through training, finding exemplars as well. Uh, people like Wes Ely, for example, um, who, who's, who's, uh, who model for you could become an exemplar of how to engage a broken system because it's going to be broken forever in a way that has integrity and in a way in which you can experience the joy of, of your work, even if it's very difficult and time consuming. Father Carr, thank you. That was a really good answer. I think I saw um, James' hand was up first. Did you have something you wanted to add, add or a question you wanted to ask related to that? Uh, yes, hi. Uh, I won't turn on my, um, my audio or my video because I'm on driving up to Pittsburgh. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Pittsburgh. I was visiting my family. Um, However, you know, I wanted to, this is probably more of a comment, but maybe a question. Um, you know, you had mentioned Weber and the vocation of science, and you related it actually back to the notion of us being as sort of uh, bureaucrats or cogs in the wheel. However, uh, what initially struck me was relating it back actually to that third dimension of burnout, which is a feeling of inefficacy. And I think that often, um, 
we, you know, get trained in saying, hey, you learn the pathophysiology so you can be an efficacious practitioner to cure patients. But in reality, we kind of run aground of, you know, being able to be efficacious in curing patients because, you know, death has the final answer. And so I don't think we're trained in sort of the phenomenology of, of suffering, death, uh, either from an Aristotelian perspective of how health matters in our life and what is the good being sought here, or in a spiritual dimension of, you know, what is sort of our, our you know, beyond death ends or, you know, that kind of uh, theological teleology. So I think uh, um, there is very little space for that because of, in order to be an effective modern practitioner of medicine, you're kind of told that you are seeking cures. And yes. that's why the whole research apparatus is involved with, you know, highly academic powerhouse medical schools. Uh, so anyways, I was wondering if you had any comments about how to, uh, because this is a communal experience, these phenomenologies, by the way. So mm-hmm. how do we, you know, as a loner, you know, with these thoughts, you know, kind of restore kind of the, the model of, of healthcare as a care, not a cure? Uh, great question, James. Thank you for that. I, you know, you, you can't do it alone. So you have to find, you have to cast about, uh, if you're a person who prays, you can pray, you can ask questions, but cast about to find people who, who are, are um, people of like mind uh, and uh, or at least like longing for that uh, to engage medicine as care. I think given your earlier comments, um, which I appreciate, you, you know, Part of us coming to to internally think of our work as as production, as technological production of healthcare services. Um, toward the end, as you noted, usually of cure of disease and to win over illness, is that I mean you only judge a technological production process by its product, and when it fails to produce the product, you know it's pointless, right. it's a failure. So if you think of medicine and the product being cure disease. Um, uh, and win out over mortality, um, you know, you're going to inevitably be a, be, be a failure. If you think of medicine as more fundamentally a matter of kind of solidarity with and attention to and walking alongside those who are sick, seeking to do what you can within reason to preserve and restore their health, then you're, it's not that you're, you're not going to have failures because you are, but you're, 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 going to experience the internal goods, realize the internal ends of that work, even if death wins, uh, which it inevitably will, as you pointed out. So yeah, we need to find others who can lean into kind of uh, coming to grips with the limits of medicine and um, rejoicing in and celebrating um, the goodness of seeking those more proximate internal goals of medicine. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I think next on my list was Morgan. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. Um, so as I wrote in the text for, you know, this whole thing about the language of medicine shaping our imagination is very powerful. And I've actually fought this fight at Salome Health, where I oversee a team of 50 that care for the underserved in Nashville, as well as a lot of volunteers and a lot of students who come from Vanderbilt. Um, And what we describe our philosophy of care as is whole person care. But I do find myself frustrated by the lack of good alternatives to language that can encompass the array of medical professionals now that have prescriptive authority and 
agency as as direct caregivers um, do you recommend any language we could preferentially use in this space other than providers you know yeah is, I, I, it's a great question uh, one i thought about quite a bit morgan i i, I like the language two different language two words one is clinician um which i realize there's some folks who don't really think of themselves as clinicians the uh who you are probably included in who you're thinking about uh, but the other is practitioner mm -hmm. um so I, I speak of healthcare practitioners and i'll think speak of clinicians to me clinicians includes certainly includes nurse practitioners and pas and and occupational therapists and physical therapists and and i think pharmacists and so on does it include nurses i think it does but some i, I probably some folks think that's awkward i don't really think of, think of it that way but healthcare practitioner clearly does so those are terms i use the other thing i love about practitioner is it evokes practice right this is a practice and a practice is something that has internal goods it's not just instrumental towards something else yeah has that gotten any traction at duke um in my little tiny world that i you know rule <laughs> in your fiefdom yeah, of the uh, theology right. medicine institute yeah, that's right i i train our fellows to you to, to not use the term provider um and uh, and to try to use you know, words that recognize there's more than clinicians going on. I mean, more than physicians involved in this work and physicians are often not the most important practitioner involved in, in, in the practice of medicine. I, I think of clinicians as practicing medicine um, uh, insofar as they're seeking the health of their patients, um, but they're not physicians. Mm -hmm. And um, the other term that's obviously evolving in front of us is healthcare from yes. care, That's true. two separate words to the Wall yeah. Street Journal just updated their style guide to make it a single word in, in, in all its uses. Is that right? I just saw that on Twitter. This, this I've, always, I've always, my understanding has always been that healthcare is one word is used when you're speaking of the system. The industry. Yeah, the industry. Now I guess it's so, it's so industrial, we're just gonna use it all the time. We've reserved it as two words in our mission statement and good the website. So you got to hold out. You got to resist. Yeah. All right. I think Leah had a question. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks. I'm a neurologist at Vanderbilt. Um, and my question is regarding uh, my role as a physician or you know, the, the role of a physician within a healthcare team, including advanced practice practitioners, I will say, um, when we're increasingly becoming utilize more as a cog in the machine, so to speak. Um, so I'm not sure if this is necessarily reflective of other divisions or departments or other medical centers, um, but I know specifically within our department, with addition of nurse practitioners and physician assistants, they basically want the physicians to see all the new patients, see as many new patients as possible, and then hand over the care to mm -hmm. the, uh, the advanced practice practitioners. Um, and so we can so we're freed up to see more new patients and i know part of the reason i went into medicine specifically outpatient medicine is to build those longitudinal relationships with my patients and so you know going back to this idea of burnout and feeling learned helplessness i don't really know what i can do to stem this uh encouragement or this trend within medicine and working with advanced practice these you know the nurse practitioners and pas i mean this is not a knock on nps and pas i know that you know we all have to work together um, 
but I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about that in terms of um, fighting something that's already seems to be unfolding when I, part of me really rails against this idea of being that cog where I'm supposed to churn through and diagnose the new patients and then I pass them on to somebody else. Yeah, no, that's a good, another example of, uh, just one more example of the way things are structured for production of services um, and structured to meet the needs of the institution as a, as a bureaucracy and as a, uh, as a institution of production of healthcare services. Um, which is governed by efficiency and effectiveness and all of that. And I, I think, um, I mean, I, I don't have a good, I don't have a specific answer except to say that it, this is the kind of moment where it's crucial, I think, for clinicians to, if you're, when you, when you're aware of this, to, to stop and think what could be done as best I can tell in my little world, what, what could be done that would move this closer to good medicine um, for my patients and for me to practice good medicine? And then to make the request for it. I mean, if uh, make a proposal, I mean, the worst that happens is people say no, but they've had a chance to, another chance to consider that this is not working for, this is not, not just that it's not working for you, but as you experience it, it's not good medicine. Um, and then just keep looking with colleagues for how can we, what could you propose to others that, that would might bend back toward good medicine? I'll give you an example, which is kind of, a, I think, a, you know, a radical one in a certain way, but it's also the most obvious one. There were, uh, a friend told me this story um, a few years ago of two doctors at Emory, um, actually, I'm not sure, that, I think they were at Emory, who were, uh, who were friends and they, their time with patients kept getting shorter and shorter to the point that they were thinking, I just, I didn't train for this. I can't, I cannot care for patients in the way I must. I internally know I must and do it in this time slot. It's become so pressured. So these two tried to think of different strategies and they ended up going to the, their uh, superiors, their bosses and saying, and making the proposal that we're either going to have to leave or we are asking you to, um, extend our time with patients by X amount, and as and and we will take a salary reduction um, to compensate for the fact that we're not going to generate as much revenue. Now, none of us is too anxious to take a salary reduction, but that's a powerful picture to me of people saying, "What what is really a value in medicine? It's those internal rewards. If I can live with it, I'm even willing to take a salary reduction." Now, some people would say that's exactly the wrong thing to do because then you're just feeding the system and letting it get away with bad structure, but I don't know. I think it's a, that could be a powerful witness. Katerina. Hi. Um, kind of going off of what Dr. Acosta was saying, um, I guess my question is, what are some practical tips to actively love my patient? Because like you were saying, being a cog in the wheel, it's really hard to overcome the bureaucracy. And um, just as a surgeon, I don't have a lot of time to interact with patients at all. And by the end of the day, um, surgery honestly just becomes a task and all the patients kind of just blur together in a number. I just wow. feel like the hospital just wants me to crank out more surgeries and even post-op, I don't see the patients a lot of the times either. They're kind of passed on to the PAs. So in the end, they just kind of blur into numbers and routine. Wow, that's, that's uh, thank you for sharing that. 
it, it, it ties into the, the, to the last um, um, observation. A colleague at uh, Loyola, John Hart, um, who has a program there called the Physician's Vocation Program, um, trains students in Ignatian practices, interestingly, as well as um, uh, sort of deep Christian tradition regarding medicine. He said one of his students reported to him that he had started um, whenever he pumps the alcohol dispenser before seeing a patient, he'd started just stopping. And as he pumps the alcohol dispenser, envisioning the priest, uh, you know, washing his hands before touching the Eucharist as a, a way of just reminding himself, I'm about to touch someone sacred. Um, and I'm about to, I'm in a very real way uh, for those who are Christians, um, I'm about to touch Christ, uh, at least according to Matthew uh, 20, either 25 or 26, when Jesus says, as much as you've visited the sick, you've visited me. Um, and I don't know if there's something like that, a practice that you could mix into your day. Um, obviously, surgeons do a lot of alcohol washing and, and other washing of their hands, but that would help you remember. Wes. But I, I have an idea about that as well, Ekaterina, and I love that you just mentioned that because I was going to say that I think this, this talk has been so anchoring for all of us uh, far, so thank you very much. What I sense my own, in my own life as an intensivist is that at times I, I can tell that I'm getting a personal bankruptcy and that, that bankruptcy is associated with a demoralization, as you say, during times of burnout. And so what I have done is I have tried to adopt practices that are so enmeshed in my RAM that my vocation in life can stay in harmony rather than my vocation seem at odds with my life. So here's, I'll be specific. So yeah, be specific. In, instead of, and I'm going to give you two specific things that I do. I'm talking to Katerina and the other students and such. So every time I walk in a patient's room, we're supposed to foam in, foam out now. Hmm. So every time I foam in, foam out, I, I trained myself that the second I pull that lever, I say, come Holy Spirit. Hmm. So I'm walking in the room. I'm foaming in. I have to do it. They're watching me, big brother. And I'm thinking, come Holy Spirit. So it reminds me, the Holy Trinity is walking with me into this room. And the second thing that I do, and I'll never forget reading and learning about this, is that Mother Teresa was asked, how do you do it? Like, how do you pick up somebody in the gutter with flies and maggots on them? And I, I went to, to uh, Calcutta and worked in, in, the, in uh, the home for the, it's called uh, the home for the destitute and dying. I was thinking of the Indian word, but I can't think of it right now. Um, and in that home there, the sisters taught me, mother was already dead when I was there, that she looked them in the eyes and said to herself quietly, this is Jesus Christ. Yeah. So in one instant, every time I walk into a clinic room, a hospital room at all, no matter how busy I am, and you could be a bu the busiest surgeon in the world, you're going to have these two interactions. Come Holy Spirit, walk in, look at the person in the eye, and just consciously train yourself to say, this is Jesus Christ. I'm looking at Jesus Christ. And even if you don't have more time, you're taking care of Jesus Christ. It's kind of what Far just said. But you can remember Mother Teresa's practice, picking mm -hmm. up a person out of the gutter, maggots and flies. This is Jesus Christ. The stench can be overcome. 
I'm connected to my vocation, there's no separation. No matter how busy I am and what I'm doing, come Holy Spirit, this is Jesus Christ. So th those are just a couple of tips that I've adopted. That's great. Amen to that. Um, if I could close with a question and then we'll, um, so I have a two part question kind of, or related question perhaps. Um, uh, what do you think was the major driving factor in the industrialization of medicine? And then also, um, do you as a practicing doctor see um, patient checkups where you see an actually healthy patient, um, do you see that as a useful part of your work or does that a big contributor to the cog part where we talked about earlier that we're not doing cures or prevention, we're doing care of the person. And if that, if you see that as care or if you see that as bureaucracy. Good, I'm gonna start with the second one and then in, in with the first. Um, the second, yeah, re regular checkups are, uh, it depends. They, they can be holy moments of encounter with a, a sacred being. Um, and, and I think you should go into those even when they're not structured that way. Um, they are often though um, done under this kind of um, medicalization of, of all of human life and where human beings in our time have come to uh, make medicine the way that we organize our response to all of our struggles and, 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 and also, and this is critical in the world of primary care, the way we manage the, the, our susceptibility to injury and illness and death in the future, which is terrifying for us. And so, for example, in primary care, we spend a lot of time you know, tweaking numbers, uh, moving the cholesterol up a little bit, the, high, the blood pressure down a little bit, or cholesterol down a little bit, blood pressure down a little bit, um, getting people to make sure they have all their vaccines and screening and so on. With this kind of idea that we're going to optimize health in such a way that we're going to keep at bay our mortality. That I find personally um, not terribly rewarding. But I think even that can be done in a way that has the vision like uh, Wes was describing, um, where you might find remarkable encounters despite, um, despite the work not being so obviously um, significant in what it's achieving. Where did this particularly start? I mean, I'll just, I, I don't know exactly, except I'll say that there's a very interesting book called To Relieve the Human Condition written about 20 years ago by um, Jerry McKinney. And he has a, a a briefer version of the book, which is just an article length called Bioethics, the Body and the Legacy of Bacon. And he, he argues that, you know, a lot of this can be tied back to the influence of Francis Bacon. Many would consider the, the, the father of modern science, but Francis Bacon was a, was a, a an Anglican. He was a Christian. Um, and he was clearly motivated by the sense that if we take charge of nature, so he saw nature as kind of, um, neutral and, and um, uh, what's the word, the word that um, Weber used? Um, anyway, that it was, it was material that we are to put to use to relieve the estate of our neighbor. We're to help our neighbor by taking charge of nature, understanding it scientifically and putting it to use. The problem with that is 
there's lots of problems with that that turned out, but um, C.S. Lewis talked about this powerfully in the book, The Abolition of Man, is that that kind of mindset, um, when you follow it to its logical conclusions, leads us to look at human nature itself as also just raw material that we are kind of working on ourselves to try to, to, try to relieve whatever condition it is that we experience as something that's burdensome to us. So we come to treat nature as if it has no end or purpose um, in itself. Um, and I, I think that's probably a particularly Protestant problem, but it's infected all of the Western world. Um, and uh, as a result, we keep looking for more and more efficient ways to break things down into their parts and put them back together in such a way that we can achieve whatever our goals are, rather than seeking to live as the kinds of beings we are, to understand what we are as human beings and what our world is like as the created order it is and live in it within our limits, uh, gratefully, patiently, uh, and so on, caring for one another, um, which is not an industrial way to live. Um, so that's, that's probably as good as I can do at this point. Thank you all for letting me be, be with you and for all of your attention. Yeah, Dr. Farr, I was just going to say this was an amazing talk. I think I speak for everyone when I say the discussion was also golden. And I know I will come away from this with many concrete ways to kind of integrate my faith more into medical school and residency. And it was great to hear everyone's different perspectives on this as well, all levels of training. Just kind of one last wrap up thing. Sure. Um, what books would you recommend to people thinking about going into the medical field in the context of this talk? Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend to make the bar lower. I'm going to recommend an essay that anybody can find on the internet, um, written by Leon Cass, um, called the end of medicine and the pursuit of health. And, um, it's a wonderful meditation on what medicine is for and what has happened in late modernity that has kind of taken us off the rails in the way, in, in the ways that I've described. Um, um, you know, otherwise I, at least for me, what inspired me about medicine was reading some biographies of remarkable physicians. Um, there was a physician named Carl Becker uh, who was a pioneer in uh, leprosy treatment in what was then the Belgian Congo. Um, and there's a biography I'm called Another Hand on Mine. So it's not so much a book about medicine as it is a picture of an exemplar of a good physician. I think getting in our mind pictures of people practicing medicine beautifully and well um, is probably as helpful as reading the critiques of medicine, although both are necessary.